0: is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New
1: South Wales.
2: Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up we have more discussion about that ban on the shooting of feral animals in all of New South Wales national parks. And the South Australian Government, well they've welcomed the Federal Government's allocation of that confidential sum to meet those environmental commitments in the Murray Darling basin you might have some thoughts about the feral uh, animal control measures or lack of them in national parks at the parks at the moment you can always send us a text here at the country House, 0467 922 684 all that and a whole lot more coming up As I was just saying, the Invasive Species Council, they've weighed into the debate about a ban on the shooting of feral animals in all of New South Wales national parks. Jack Goff is an advocacy manager at the council. He says the decision's crazy because we know that with this wet weather, pest animals like pigs, deer dogs, cats and horses will be exploding in number across our national parks. He says not only do we see the damage that animals cause to farming and the environment, to our native wildlife and our ecosystems, but we also know that feral pigs and deer will be some of the major spreaders of foot and mouth disease if that should ever get to Australia.
3: With this wet weather, we know that feral animals like pigs, deer and horses are exploding across our national parks. And so not taking action to bring their numbers down now is going to be a disaster for our native wildlife, our ecosystems. But it's also a significant concern in terms of Australia's foot and mouth disease preparedness because we know that feral pigs and deers will be some of the major spreaders of that disease if it reaches our shores. So it's really concerning that the New South Wales government, seemingly from nowhere, has put a ban on all... Shooting of feral animals across all national parks across the entire state, millions of hectares um, of operations that have been affected, and um, with no real reason that this should have occurred.
2: well It seems so. It was an isolated issue that was arrived as a result of uh, some shooting of horses that were in the Snowy National Park. But that seems to ballooned out to the whole state. I don't, I don't understand how that happened.
3: Well. I mean, it's, it's, it's a mystery um, to, to, to me uh, how, how we, we got here, but essentially uh, a shock jock on, on Sydney radio in, in conjunction with Mark Latham, the the head of One Nation, um, were blowing up the issue of a professionally conducted humane cull of a number of horses in Kosciuszko National Park back in September They started to conflate that issue with another allegation from six months earlier around um, an aerial-coloured deer um, in a a separate part of um, the park, put all this together, made it seem like there was suddenly, um, you know, I think Mark Latham described it as apocalypse now, despite it being a, a completely professional, humane operation, putting a lot of pressure on the Premier and the Environment Minister, and it seems that they blinked that they decided to um, shut down uh, shooting operations. We know there's an election coming up around the corner and there obviously um, is some concern around that. It turns out that that ban has actually been extended statewide to all feral animals, despite this being one isolated allegation of one incident six months ago on one shock jock radio program. So it's a completely... Um, disproportionate reaction and, and of course safety is paramount but it is ridiculous that one allegation on one shock jock radio station has shut down pest management in parks across the entire state we we need the environment minister to overturn this ban we need him to do it quickly and allow national park staff to continue to do their jobs safely professionally humanely as they've done for years when it comes to pest animal management
2: Angus Atkinson is chair of the Sustainable Development and Climate Change for the National Farmers Federation. He's also a beef producer at Coonabarabra, and he says he's shocked and angered by the decision. He says pigs are out of control at the moment and all means of control are needed to deal with the federal problem, and it's a dereliction of the minister's duty if he's not going to do that. Michael, it is outrageous.
4: It is absolutely outrageous. In 2022, we've got a minister that has suspended an effective control program for what reason? I just—it It is unbelievable to me to think that the minister can, like in six weeks' time, cats have bred, pigs have bred, deer have bred, and this guy's just decided to say, no, we're going to suspend that control activity. It is just completely outrageous.
2: And you were saying the scale of the problem, you can see it on your farm.
4: Oh, Michael, the pigs at the moment are just out of control, as any farmer will tell you. So just in the last eight weeks, we have managed to shoot poison trap about 140 pigs, and that's and that's how many we've done. And that's just us. That's on one farm. National Park Estate is millions of hectares, and for the last six weeks they've been doing no shooting of of, of ferals. I just think that is that's their core job, and they've just they've just given that up for the fact. A really important thing to remember, Michael. Every year cats kill a billion native animals. So this guy said, okay, now, nah. so when the ranger sees a, a five-kilo walk past, you has got to wave it by. I just think this is really a terrible decision.
2: And the issue, too, is that uh, it's all driven out of the snowy national parks and a number of um, horse carcasses that were, that were found there, too. What's your response to that?
4: But they've got some issues down there with, their, with the, the, their horse management stuff. Uh, personally, this is a personal opinion, a national park is what it is. And and, and any feral animal that doesn't belong there needs to be controlled. And you can't start picking and choosing which ones you're going to deal with. A a feral pig is an enormously destructive animal. And we need to have all control measures available, not just pick and choose the ones that are, that that, that you might say, uh, paint a nice picture. Control is is, is, you know, it's a really important and essential service. To, to involve the whole state was a complete overreaction. Like that's the part that I find extraordinary. If they have said, "Okay, we're going to do that in that particular zone," I could, under, I could understand it, I suppose. But to do it statewide, just, it's just baffling, complete and utterly sounded by.
2: But it also raises a philosophical question about shooting to sh- the shooting of feral animals, and you think that that's misguided too?
4: Oh, look, I just, I just think that it, you have to have. Like all integrated pest strategies, you have to have all the tools available to you. The classic example is, is for pigs. Like pigs is a classic example of them. Not all of them will eat bait. Not all of them will go into traps. And sometimes you do need to get in, like example would be, get a helicopter in and to get some real get a high numbers down rapidly. Now, to, to just suddenly say we're not going to use one of the tools because some a, a special interest group rings up a radio person in Sydney and a guy in in Sydney makes a decision that affects myself and people at Burke and Wilcannia and Cobar, and has no implication on them. I think it's just completely utterly outrageous.
2: Now you mentioned cats. There's also deer. There's uh, pigs. You know, there's the whole, there's wild dogs. So there's a whole range of feral animals that would we'll be breeding up now. And also, we have foot and mouth disease on our doorstep. Is that a concern too?
4: Absolutely, Michael. Like, this is just uh, the unintended consequences. But the problem here is, Michael, these weren't unknowns. This minister has just come in and completely ignored the plain and obvious and made this ridiculous decision. We had to make some drastic action if we've got things like foot and mouth in it. We need to be able to, you know, act really properly and get on with the business. His job or her job should be to control pests and weeds in National Park. And they've just given it away. For, for what reason? I
2: just, it is baffling. That's just uh, some of the thoughts there from Angus Atkinson, who's a beef producer at, at uh, Coonabarabra, and he's also uh, chair of the Sustainable Development and Climate Change Committee with the National Farmers Federation. Now, we did actually uh, comment the minister, uh, get to see to get some comments from the minister, James Griffin. He's been contacted uh, for comment. Nothing back as yet. But um, earlier in the week, we got a a, a statement from a spokesman for New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service, and they told us uh, that a review of public safety measures was initiated in relation to a specific incident involving the aerial shooting of feral deer by New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service. A report is being prepared. Uh, This doesn't impact on baiting and trapping operations for wild dog management in parts of the state associated with stock losses. However, the department did not dispute that shooting has been stopped while that review is underway. It's coming up to a quarter past 12. And you might have some thoughts on that yourself Uh, already. We're getting a few texts in 0467 922 684.
5: You're listening to The Country Hour
1: on ABC Radio New South Wales.
2: Talking about the weather and the flooding and the rain and large hailstorms have rained down on parts of western New South Wales earlier this week with one farmer saying about half his cotton crop took quite a beating. Much of the cotton is still sitting there six months after it was supposed to be harvested because the ground remains too wet. Rob Tuck is a mixed farmer 40 kilometres out of narramine and he says over the last two weeks he's gotten about 300 millimetres of rain, of falls, of what's fallen on already waterlogged ground. Uh,
6: large hailstones, probably uh, not golf ball size, but not far off, um, pretty solid for sort of 20 minutes pretty hard to get down there at the moment because of water but um probably 50 percent i reckon 50 to 60 percent smack on the cotton um taking a lot of the top crop out and it's actually been it's stood there pretty well over this time it's quite an amazing crop cotton um any other crop would have been shot and sprung or um yeah totally trashed but it's 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 stood there pretty well so yeah it's just taken the top of the crop out Maybe 50%, 60%.
7: Mm, It seems pretty resilient, but how much of a quality hit do you reckon it's taken being so many months delayed?
6: Uh, Not too bad. It's actually a pretty tough crop. It might have taken one colour downgrade. Like some of the later stuff we've had gin that probably had three or four hundred mils of rain on it. It's still going 41, 41 41.3s, which is one one grade below base grade.
7: And um, do you have any other crops or livestock as well there?
6: We have uh, we have all of the above. We've managed to get probably sixty to seventy percent of our broadacre program in in June. Um, we've got canola sitting there, ready to windrow now. That's probably sitting in a half a metre of water underneath it. So that won't happen. It'll be a direct head episode now. I'd say so. Um, we're just got to let it dry out. We need a month of dry weather. So mm-hmm. that'll get us on canola, um, and then we all our wheat. Yeah, the water hopefully will soak in, and run off. We just need that dry weather. So yeah, even if it does come out sunny and doesn't rain again, which I don't think it is, looking at all the weather forecasts. Yeah, we, we just need that hot, some summer. We just need some summer weather to try it out.
7: And uh, what's the impact been like on your livestock operations? Is that How's that going?
6: Well, we moved all our livestock, luckily, after the last 100 mils uh, we had two weekends ago that put us underwater a fair bit. And we actually got them all out of the water and got them up on high ground, um, luckily, because this 200 mils we've had we can just go on and really put all that country sort of anywhere half a metre underwater, half a metre to a metre underwater. So they're up on high ground, luckily. Um, but like all livestock, we have, you know, our sheep are um, a lot of sore feet, foot abscess from the from the continual walking on wet soil and wet grass, wet pastures.
7: Is that a significant additional cost to your operations? Oh,
6: everything's a cost to the operation, um, yeah, budgeting costs this year have probably increased by 35% across the board. Fertiliser, fuel, animal health, you know, chemistry, the whole lot. So, yeah, it's pretty easy to put a 35% increase on everything.
2: That was Rob Tarkus, a farmer from Narrow Mine, talking there to, to Hannah Joes. It's uh, 19 past
5: 12.
1: You're listening to The Country Hour.
5: On ABC Radio, New South Wales.
2: to the budget now and the Federal Government says it will now fund a major rebuild of a key freight route between the Upper Hunter and the Liverpool Plains. It's a late clarification to the budget. The road connecting Meriwaw and Willow Tree, known as the MR358 or Colson's Creek Road, has been closed to traffic for more than 18 months after a botched upgrade and subsequent landslips. $38.6 million was pitched by New England MP Barnaby Joyce during the federal election campaign, topped up by $9.66 million from the New South Wales government. But the federal funding was not specifically written into Labor's first budget this week. But the Albanese government has announced that it has allocated that $38.6 million. Upper Hunter Shire Council says it's ready to go ahead with the tender, with designs and plans also ready to go. And for Mary war farmer Claire Martin, it's news that she never thought that she would hear.
8: Oh, my God. That's amazing. That is so wonderful. I had given up hope. I was sure we weren't going to get it. That is brilliant. We still don't have... Very a, excited.
7: <laughs> we don't have much of a timeline going forward, but the, the money's there. Council says they're pretty much shovel-ready. Take us through the last few years, uh, you know, at your place there. Um, you know, I know you run cattle, but obviously, just trying to move around the wider um, Hunter Liverpool Plains as well.
8: Yes, and and actually, it's um, at the moment the running sheep that is creating probably as many difficulties as anything, because um, we source our shearers from the um, from the Liverpool Range side, from the Currindale side. And, uh, like, we're in the middle of shearing at the moment and, you know, we've got uh, cars travelling around each day and it'll cost us more in travel than in in wages um, for them to do it. So to go back to being able to use the range will be incredible. Ah, my daughter will be able to come home without it being a two-and-a-half-hour journey, all sorts of things. It's um, Yeah, life has been quite difficult. It's This is going to... Make life better, I know we've got another couple of years to wait. They've told us it'll take two to three years from when they start it, but oh it's just it's just great news that um it is going to happen.
9: When was the last time you think you drove between the towns?
8: I think they, it was um January last year when they when they um when they closed it so Goodness. I can actually tell you now that what we do is um, is we walk from the bottom of the range to the top of the range at times to meet up with my daughter and and pass things across and, and so forth and then walk all the way back down it's it 's um, yeah, a long way from ideal
0: Goodness, how far are you walking from where you can park the car or something
8: Yes, yeah, from the bottom um, <laughs> all the way to the, um, all the way to the top and i 'll meet up with her and go to Tamworth and then come back and walk all the way down and say that I don't buy much.
7: Oh, goodness me, you're getting a big backpack. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess the, the commentary we've had around this in the last few weeks, um, seeing the new Albanese government back away from a lot of coalition programs, were you were you hopeful or had you sort of written it off going into this budget that we might see this funding?
8: I had lost all hope. I had lost all hope that the Albanese government would give us the funding um From the time that it was announced that the money was not actually in the coalition budget uh, up until then i was I was still holding hope that they would um go with what was in there that with what we had been promised, and then the announcement was made that it actually wasn 't in there and yeah i I lost all hope and and just um yeah had no idea how we were going to to ever get um a road back but this is yeah. While we still have, as I say, two or three years in front of us of, of having to uh, to live without the, the road, the fact that there will be another one there is um, is very good news.
2: That's Meriwaw farmer Claire Martin speaking there to Amelia Bernasconi about that news that the Albanese government has announced it will allocate that money to Colson's Creek Road, or otherwise known as MR three 358 between Merriwar and Willow Tree. So that's uh, going to go ahead, that money for the upgrade. 23 minutes past
5: 12. The Country Hour. On ABC Radio New South Wales.
2: We're still on the budget and water now because the South Australian Government has welcomed the Federal Government's allocation of that confidential sum to meet the environmental commitments in the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. The ABC has confirmed the figure, but it hasn't been published for fear of commercial sensitivities it's actually been set aside so the Commonwealth could buy water entitlements from willing sellers, uh, that is, irrigators. South Australia's Water Minister, Susan Close, welcomed the secret allocation and said her state feels more confident about the plan as a result. What's essential is that the... Commonwealth Government has
10: said not only are we committed to this plan but we are prepared to spend money to make sure that the water comes and I can only welcome that and look forward to talking with the Federal Minister about the ways in which that can now be delivered.
0: Susan Close, I want to ask you about the 450 gigalitres. We're seeing So much water, more water in the system than we have in decades at the moment. There's lots of unregulated water that's passing through into your state. Yet I understand the mouth of the Murray is still being dredged. Are you
10: confident that there's room in the system for another 450 gigalitres? There is absolutely room for 450 gigalitres. In fact, we are expecting at this stage in December to have 120 gigalitres per day flowing into South Australia. So 450 gigalitres in that context is not so very much to have allocated as a guaranteed amount so that we are ready for the next drought coming through in addition not only across the system but also into South Australia and down to the lower lakes. There is a challenge at present that the River Murray mouth is not being scoured naturally, that we are still having to dredge. That's partially because the system has been so dry in the past that it's taken a very long time for water to come down to us, even with three years of rain. It is also because we've had high tides. Now that the water has arrived, it's come at a time when the ocean tide is of such a height that it's been pushing back on the water coming down. We expect that to change in the very near future and we're going to see some natural scouring, which is brilliant. All of this water right now is very challenging in Victoria and will be challenging in the Riverland, but also has environmental benefits right now. What it doesn't do is guarantee us the water for the environment for when the dry times come back. That can only be delivered through the plan working and we finally have a Commonwealth government that's prepared to make that happen.
0: If, hypothetically, it was to be reallocated using Commonwealth water buybacks... Does that really help the situation if we have constraints and the water can't actually be delivered to environmental projects and and be part of environmental waterings? It doesn't really work unless you have the other, does it?
10: There is a bit of a myth that the 450 doesn't work unless there are significant constraint changes. Uh, the maximum benefit of the 450 gigalitres is delivered through the constraints measures that have been identified. However, there are significant environmental benefits in the 450 gigalitres being assigned to the Commonwealth water holder, even without changes to those constraints. It's simply not true to say that you cannot get any benefits unless those constraints measures are enacted. That must not be used as an argument to step away from the commitment to 450 gigalitres coming into the system for the environmental health of the entire system.
0: Would it be acceptable to South Australia if at the next Water Minister's meeting it was agreed that that the 450 could be uh, acquired using water buybacks, but the basin plan deadline was extended by a couple of years, say, um, giving the northern states time to to, to complete um, the SIDLAN projects?
10: I'm not interested in simply giving an extension in time. Having had two gigalitres delivered thus far with another 18 or so in the pipeline but not yet delivered there is no confidence from the South Australian perspective that we could allow an extension and still have any confidence that the water will come. If there's a proposition that guarantees water and it has an enforceability mechanism, then they can put anything they like to me and I will consider it on its merits. But simply extending is not an option. Extension with enforceability, with certainty, is something that I'm at least prepared to hear them put to me before considering whether it's in South Australia's interests. And when I say South Australia's interests, that's the interest of the sustainability of the entire system because we're at the bottom.
2: South Australia's Water Minister Susan Close speaking there with Kath Sullivan. was still on that issue of buybacks. Federal shadow Water Minister Perrin Davey has called on the federal government to outline its plans to spend
11: those confidential
2: or secret funds.
11: Buybacks distort the water market. They have an impact on the water market. Uh, The threat of buybacks is already having implications. I got a call from a water broker this morning saying that the listings he had for permanent water for sale have now been removed because people think they'll get paid more by the government. Um, It puts a squeeze on the water market. It impacts... uh, ongoing farmers' input costs and therefore their their bottom line, their business decisions. And then it also has flow-on impacts on our value-add uh, industries. Can we just take a step back? The Coalition... In government,
0: we haven't seen a water buyback, a Commonwealth buyback for almost a decade. Why was it?
11: Because we listened to irrigation communities who clearly said to us, buybacks are the most blunt instrument, most damaging form of water recovery. And there are better ways to do it by working with communities, with irrigation districts uh, to look for strategic water recovery or water recovery that allows ongoing productivity without distorting the water market. As Perrin
2: Davey, the, the Federal Shadow Water Minister, also a National Senator from New South Wales. You can read more reaction to this week's federal budget allocation online as well at ABC News or on our rural news page. It's half past 12. Um, before we go to uh, news headlines and some weather details, lots and lots of uh, text coming through, really uh, put the cat amongst the pigeons in regards to this issue, uh, Dave's texted in, we introduced these feral animals, we need to get rid of them. No ifs, no buts, we just need to do it. Uh, also, uh, uh, Damien's texted in from Kuma saying, how pathetic is this story as to what percentage of feral animals are actually controlled by shooting? He says it's minimal. But Scooter says, well, what a des- silly decision that is about no shooting of ferals in national parks. He says, what's next? No poisoning of mice, no poisoning of foxes, what a joke, he says. That's unbelievable. Also, um, uh, Peter at Beger has texted in saying, uh, James Griffin, the New South Wales Environment Minister and the Premier are holding endangered species and the state biosecurity in contempt. This is an outrageous decision to cease feral horse and other feral culling. He says more delays will result in the expansion of numbers, making the issue even more challenging and destructive. Uh, also, I've uh, got a text in, from uh, Donna who's saying she'd been driving around Ivanhoe this this time uh, last year and she said the number of goats there with young was astounding with those favourable conditions so uh, it's not just one species there's a range of pests out there and we need to control them and we need to have uh, shooting as an option Uh, that one uh, she says it's uh, an inane decision to cease those sorts of controls and um, mixed texted in saying the news on feral animals is absolutely devastating. If the Minister doesn't stop it, there'll be serious consequences in several ways uh, in terms of the numbers of pest animals we're seeing. So a range of texts coming through, lots and lots of texts coming through, more texts than I can read out. So, uh, But keep them coming, 0467 is the number to text me here at the Country Hour. But right now it's time to get some uh, news headlines now from Adam Story. Good afternoon.
12: And you will personally respond to those
2: <laughs> text oh, <laughs> as many as I can I will air. Occasionally we ring people up. It does happen occasionally. Uh, not all the time. I'm uh, oh, not promising that. <laughs> oh okay. <laughs> Not enough hours. Very in accessible. Day, though, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> always accessible. That's yeah, right. that's send it. me an email. Yeah, right.
12: t- round the clock. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Uh, the Bruce Lerman uh, jury has been discharged. Uh, that was after deliberating for five days, uh, and uh, misconduct by a juror has sparked this uh, discharging. The chief justice said she had learned at least one juror had obtained material. was not included in the trial and brought it into the deliberations room Uh, so as a result that jury has been dismissed Uh, bruce Laman is back out on bail and a new trial date is going to be set Uh, the federal government has introduced its new industrial relations legislation into parliament among the controversial elements are provisions forcing employers to consider requests for flexible working arrangements and expanding multi-employer bargaining Uh, and uh, there is also uh, the clause which uh, will allow people to talk to each other about how much they're earning. Mm. Uh, Which I
2: thought was really strange. I didn't realise it was the law. yeah,
12: Yeah, that's it. So,
2: That's, that seems to me crazy. Exactly, anyway.
12: yeah. So, yeah, so apparently, what, what oh, next? You just what can't are you talk on? to oh, co What are you on? This. <laughs> right, both of you, out. Uh, <laughs> meanwhile, a law providing 10 days paid family and domestic violence leave for workers, including casuals, has passed Parliament. The changes uh, will come into effect at large organisations in February, uh, while smaller businesses will have an extra six months to prepare. And uh, charges against a Sydney teenager who's accused of using the information from the OCT of the Optus hack uh, in a blackmail scam will be reviewed. Uh, they may be talking about uh, upping the charges. The law, his lawyer has told the court he will plead guilty, uh, but the DPP says they're uh, looking at the charges given the seriousness of the case. Now, on the charges that he's already facing, it's a maximum penalty of 10 years imprisonment for the um, the two existing charges, uh, which was the blackmail attempt. And uh, that's all i got. That's about it. That's, that's
2: about it. And, and then we'll have to find out the latest by listening at one o'clock. Yes, yes. <laughs> of course. I, sh- I shall be there pending and then,
12: any... And then know. all
2: afternoon. Yeah.
12: yeah. <laughs> all right. It was a long day yesterday, I assure you.
2: Oh, that's right. You were in here early, weren't you? I, mate, I yeah. was in
12: here in the morning.
2: <laughs> I know. Great. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, the things you do when you love your job that much. Oh, you know? mate. You know, it's all for the good <laughs> of the corporation. <laughs> okay. Thanks for that, Adam. Adam's story there with the news headlines. It's 25 minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details and link at Dumas at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. So what are we seeing much rainfall around the state at the moment or has there been a lull?
9: Yeah, look, there is uh, mostly in the eastern uh, districts and eastern half of the state is where we're seeing most of the rainfall and about the uh, western slopes of the ranges. Um, And this is all due to a sort of two systems. One, there's a low-pressure trough, which is um, slowly making its way across New South Wales and will situate itself off the northeast uh, coast of New South Wales later today. Um, But we've also got another complex low-pressure system uh, down near Tasmania. So the two systems combined are still bringing a continuation of these showers and uh, some storms in particular Um, for the remainder of today. Now, thunderstorms, particularly about the northern coast, northern ranges and parts of the central ranges and uh, northwest slopes and plains uh, may become severe this afternoon uh, with the risk of some damaging wind gusts. Um, uh, large hail and also some heavy bursts of rainfall leading to some flash flooding so just monitor any uh, warnings and the radar over the next uh, several hours and uh, into this evening particularly if you are in that uh, northeastern part, uh, sort of quadrant of New South Wales um, now we also do have a uh, severe weather warning current for uh, damaging winds about the Alpine region um, above about 1,900 metres, um, so these two systems combined are bringing uh, some windy conditions about uh, the Alpine region as, as well as uh, the uh, extending sort of into other parts of the uh, southeastern New South Wales including through the Illawarra and um, Southern Tablelands where we could see winds developing uh, during Friday in particular picking up over the weekend. Um, now, uh, this rainfall, uh, which we're seeing today, will ease uh, briefly uh, on, uh, on Friday and Saturday as a high pressure system moves across uh, New South Wales. However, from Sunday, uh, we are expecting uh, the next uh, trough to make its way uh, across New South Wales from the west. Now, this uh, next system is expected to bring a return to widespread uh, shower and thunderstorm activity, particularly about the western inland areas uh, during Sunday and Monday. Um, and then following this system, uh, we will see a cold front uh, push uh, fairly closely um, behind uh, this trough Um, and that cold front is looking fairly significant for this time of the year. It is expected to bring quite a drop in temperatures um, as well as some snowfall to low levels and a return to windy conditions across uh, most districts uh, in the first half of next week.
2: Yeah that system we have we uh, talked about it a bit on the program yesterday so and uh, and is it the similar sort of system to what we've seen and is it Fairly widespread and throughout the state, or where is it? Where will it be centred? Do you think?
9: Um, yeah, so the trough which will bring uh, widespread rainfall during Sunday and uh, Monday about western inland areas and about the western slopes of the ranges. Um, that is looking fairly similar to the one that we just uh, had moved through uh, over the last couple of days. So it is going to be fairly stormy, um, probably a little bit windier than the system that we saw um, this week move through. Um, but certainly we are expecting generally uh, fairly uh, sort of wide. Most, most places will see at least a shower um, or some rainfall uh, with this system. Um, the cold front itself is uh, is is pretty strong for this time of the year. Um, we don't often we whilst we do see cold fronts push uh, northwards and across New South Wales uh, during October. Um, this one is looking uh, fairly strong, and uh, towards the end of October, a little bit more unusual. Um, but certainly, we're looking at snow down to a about a thousand metres about the southern ranges and uh the risk of some snowfall about the central tablelands by mid next week as well and uh it will be very, really windy and uh quite a quite cool temperatures um below se- several degrees below average for this time of the year and the windy conditions will um uh, will bring uh, that wind chill factor will come into play as well
2: well what about the the river systems will we be watching all of them will they all be potentially uh you know impacted and maybe some more flooding or uh, more more uh you know more of those ca- wet catchments uh filling up the river systems like the Lachlan the Murrumbidgee and uh, in the north and Namoy, the Gwida and the Peel
9: yes yeah, certainly uh the southern inland um and the catchments about the western slopes um we are expecting uh further river, river rises in particular
2: but not um, so much that, in the north
9: well look at this stage um it looks like the, uh, we will i mean it's not going to be quite as widespread it's going to be very convective so some places will see uh higher rainfall totals than others um the difference with the north and the south is that um we are we will See some of those rivers swelling over the next couple of days just due to uh, dams uh, releasing water um, so with any further rainfall and with thunderstorms moving across flash flooding will become a risk so whether it's um, whether it's we will see river rises with this next system but also flash flooding is probably more of a risk with any um, shower or storm that comes through over the next uh over the next week and in the next couple of
2: months. Right. Okay. So that that's so this system, similar to the one that's gone through, maybe not as much in the north, uh, a little bit more in in the south, and sort of a, sort of uh, minimum amounts of millimeters of rain might be sort of ten, fifteen. But then, of course, there's could be storms on top of that. what Is that what we're looking at?
9: Yeah, that's correct. Um, but also, yeah, up in the north, we are expecting sort of a bit. Uh, slightly drier conditions mm. over the next few days, whereas the southern inland, particularly the western slopes, um, will see persistent showers uh, over the next few days. So that's also adding to the river systems and the catchments uh, in the southern um, districts. And I didn't that's mention the Murray the situation as well. So, <laughs> so, that, so the Murray <laughs> as
2: well might, might uh, get some more uh, inflows there too, which is probably not um, what they want.
9: Yeah, look, I mean, um, it is uh, going to be touch and go over the next... Uh, Particularly over the next month, um, with each system that comes across until uh, we see some of the, these, uh, these floodwaters recede, um, any, any system which moves through is always going to be a risk of seeing some further river rises.
2: OK, Alenka, thanks for that. Thank you very much. It's 19 to 1. The Country
5: Hour. On ABC Radio New South Wales.
2: The Albanese government handed out its first budget this week and between the big uh, regional telecommunications issues, water buybacks and also health spending announcements, you may not have noticed that it was a small funding package with uh, what's been said to be some pretty big implications for the seafood industry. $1.6 billion over two years was set aside to introduce country of origin labelling in the food service trade. And Seafood Industry Australia's CEO, Veronica Papacosta, says while the industry has long lobbied for these changes, the funding attached to the announcement was a bit of a welcome surprise.
13: I'm going to be completely honest and say that we actually weren't concerned about the money as we were the the issue at hand. So we were so happy with the election commitment that the Albert Newsy government made around country of origin labelling and, and just investigating the issue that the actual addition of $1.6 million is is a bonus. And as an industry, we are um, incredibly happy. How will that money be used then? Well, I mean, there's a lot of touch points in the development of or in the removal of this exemption, which is actually what it is, and development of the policy moving forward. There is a lot of time and resource and and, uh, negotiation that's going to be required to make sure all the stakeholders are happy. So I imagine that this is going to go towards that. As I said, it's actually a bit of a surprise to us the the level of funding that was put forward. So we'll make sure that we use it to make to get the outcome as quickly as possible. And I do believe that some of it will do, will go to making you know the impacts on food service you know meted or softened. Okay. And so, do you think the country of
7: origin labelling should be mandatory? Is that what you're hoping for in the food food service trade? Are you hoping for that mandatory element?
13: Absolutely. So it's, country of origin labelling is mandatory. We have legislation in the retail cabinet. What we have in place at the moment is an exemption for food service, which means if you go into a supermarket or a retail business, you have there is a, there's an obligation for the retailer to tell you where your seafood is from. If you go into a cafe, restaurant or club or pub, that uh, obligation is not there. So what we're going to be negotiating is removing that exemption and making sure that it happens in a way that keeps the food food industry along, along for the journey. And it's all about consumer transparency. So it's about making sure that customers know what seafood they're buying. It's important to note that in other proteins like beef uh, and chicken, they don't have that concern. But we do, we import, we're a net, we import 60% of the seafood that we eat in Australia. So it's super important that Australian consumers understand when they're eating Australian seafood and when they're not.
7: Mm. Okay, so this is something that you have been lobbying for for a very long time. Do you think that it will actually happen now under this Albanese government?
13: I'm very confident. So I think these matters are around appetite and timing. So we've been lobbying as an industry for at least 15 years. Uh, It's been such an industry push and such a consistent effort. And I don't think I've ever seen a time when we've had so much support uh, and consensus from the government. So I'm incredibly confident.
2: CVN Industry Australia CEO Veronica Papacosta speaking there with Jessica Hayes. Going back to our text line, and uh, this time there's quite a few texts that came through on the water issue. Of course, that uh, talk about that secret fund of money that uh, might be used for voluntary water buybacks uh, that's been uh, allocated in the budget but it hasn't been made public because it might skew the market in terms of water. Uh, someone, Andrews, texted in saying, seems strange when farmers complain about voluntary water buybacks. If it's so devastating to them, that is the National Party, And irrigation communities, uh, then Andrew says, just don't sell the water. It's not compulsory, he says. Maybe they should focus their outreach at uh, their mates, their irrigation mates who actually do sell the water. And uh, on the uh, water issue, Brian has texted in to say, on the water issue, the many miles of uncovered irrigation channels, uh, some attention's needed there in terms of evaporation. If they were covered, that would save a lot that uh, is uh, evaporated eventually. So he's saying a lot of uh, covered, uncovered irrigation channels could be covered and that would make a big difference uh, in terms of evaporation of water. It's 14 to 1.
11: The Country
5: Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales.
2: We heard yesterday that bee baiting will begin this week at Nana Glen on the Coffs Coast as the state government works to control the Varroa mite outbreak. It's smack bang in the middle of the flowering season for the region's raspberry growers. It's a six week window when it's critical for bees to pollinate the orchards. Many raspberry growers are now turning to native bees. But as native beekeeper Richard Ray explains to Miranda Saunders, there's a huge lack of knowledge about the difference between native and European bees and it's putting the pollination of those crops at risk. My
14: concerns are that the raspberry growers are being forced to buy native bees for pollination, but unfortunately they're not well informed on the best way to use native bees, and that could lead to some problems with just the ongoing health of the native bees. It could lead to some poor results in pollination as a result of not using them correctly. It just seems that as an industry, I would have thought that the industry bodies would have put together some sort of working committee, tapping into the native bee industry, which is a small industry but growing, and there's some well-informed and experienced people in the industry, and they could have put together a working committee and got the best ideas to help out the raspberry growers.
10: How critical a a period of time is it at the moment that raspberry growers have bees?
14: They're in the middle of flowering at the moment, so it's the most critical time of the year for pollination and as they can't use European bees as they've been destroyed due to the Varroa mite, they're forced to use native bees for pollination. So it couldn't be any more critical.
10: Why are native bees different? Can you just explain some of the differences um, between native bees and uh, European bees?
14: Okay, so the native bees that I'm talking about uh, are carbonaria, That means it's a social bee, so we can keep them in hives. The majority of Australian native bees are solitary bees. Therefore, we can't manage those. So we're talking about the management in hives of bees. We do understand that they're stingless, which is a great advantage. It means they're easily managed by um, the growers themselves and also the beekeepers. They're a smaller bee. They fly a different distance. They will be subject to different um, impacts of pesticides and things, given their size. The management of them needs to be carefully controlled because the bees can fight with each other. If they're the density of them, the proximity of them is too close. It's just different animal husbandry to European bees.
10: So even if they had experience in European bees, it's it's vital that they, I suppose, re-educate themselves for native bees?
14: A little bit, but most of them don't have experience in European bees because they bring in beekeepers. So they bring them in and they're um, adjusted on their orchard or they're brought in, they pay for them for a certain amount per week or whatever. Um, and the beekeepers look after them. So the knowledge is embedded in the European beekeepers more so than the growers. Whereas with native bees, they're more likely to buy the hives and have them on their property.
10: Why, why do they buy them opposed to having beekeepers like in the in the European sort of industry?
14: The European um, beekeeping industry is built around honey production in the main. That's their main source of income. They might get a secondary income as a result of renting the hives out for pollination. To do it for. Uh, native bees the industry's not that big the number of beekeepers that have enough hives to take them down and rent them out put them on farms they can't manage european bees because they they sting and it's a challenge to manage european bees you can manage native bees because then they're stingless it's possible for a grower to to actually have them on their heart on their farm and then manage them and move them they can even split them if they learn how to do that good for the native bee industry that uh, another industry is opening up and Native beekeepers can sell their hives to them. But we shouldn't be really selling them to them if we have an understanding of how they're going to use and use them and they're well-informed. They need to know what to do with the hives. Aren't on flowers, on the raspberries. They're going to have to move them somewhere else. There's a bit of knowledge to to transfer. going to be careful that the native bee industry just doesn't sell them lots of hives without giving them good information.
2: That was Richard Ray from Bee Native Australia, Talking to Miranda Saunders, it's uh, coming up to 10 minutes to 1. Shortly we'll go to Markets. But uh, first up, uh, sea urchins there on the march and they're destroying reef habitats along the east coast. And a Federal Senate inquiry has been launched to investigate the impact of long-spined sea urchins on parts of the Great Southern Reef, particularly between Sydney and Tasmania. The commercial sea urchin industry is asking for more support from government to help tackle the problem. Our reporter, Kira Proust, has this report.
7: Covered in spikes, sea urchins might not be at the top of your list when you're out buying seafood. But eating them could help restore and protect Australia's Great Southern Reef, which stretches from New South Wales right down to Tasmania and across to Western Australia. The sea urchin row, which is found inside the shell, is popular in migrant communities and demand for the product is growing. Based on the New South Wales South Coast, Director CEO of Sea Urchin Harvest, Chris Theodore, has seen his business grow since starting more than a decade ago.
15: We've only done the local domestic market for the last 10 or 12 years, but we're just getting set up for export now. There is quite a big demand in Australia and it's um, yeah, steadily growing but it's still mainly the Asians who eat the majority and um, also the the Maoris absolutely love it. It's one of their traditional foods. So they're our two biggest sort of customers.
7: Is sustainability a big part of your business as well in terms of the fact that it is trying to tackle this environmental problem?
15: So all our headlands and rocky reefs all along the coast, sort of from Sydney down, uh, have a massive sea urchin problem and they sort of just encroach on the reefs and they move through in giant numbers taking out all the kelp and just leaving behind barren white rock and um, not much life at all so the, the more you can sort of remove the better there the problem is massive the scale is huge you just no one could believe it unless you sort of see it with your own eyes but so every everyone that removed really does help. And um, yeah, there's there's no sustainability issues with sea urchins because there's just so many of them.
7: Despite being native to New South Wales, long-spined sea urchins have greatly damaged local reefs and have also made their way down into Victorian and Tasmanian oceans, turning healthy marine environments into urchin barrens. Tasmanian Green Senator Peter Wish-Wilson has seen the impact firsthand as a scuba diver himself, which prompted him to launch a federal inquiry into. The issue.
16: I've taken it on as a personal crusade to do whatever I can about this. And of course, when I looked into why the last kelp forest largely vanished off Tasmania's coasts, it was for numerous because of numerous pressures. But one of the key one of the key factors was you know the, the march of uh, the invasive urchins that have come down from New South Wales on the, the warming and nutrient poor East Australian Current. Yeah, and they proliferated with no predators. They proliferated and like little packs, Little pack men, they've kind of munched their way through um, our coastal, offshore coastal ecosystems, including these giant kelp forests.
7: One group having their say in this inquiry are the traditional custodians who have lived along the New South Wales coastline for thousands of years. While Bunjaman Wally Stewart says Indigenous people have been left out of the discussion until now and that he hopes the inquiry will lead to better opportunities for his people.
16: The own mob have been talking about how their water is unhealthy and they've been talking about it for a long time, so we've done that done a survey amongst our mob and our mob they only jump off the rocks diving and and they can see that there's um, it's really damaged so we've we done a survey amongst our own mob and they highlighted you know some of the damage along the coast where they is where they fish and dive and we're really concerned because you know it's got a massive impact on our on our community you know our health the loss of seafood the loss of um you know teaching our kids you know the poor health the impact on the community connection and now the impact on um, including employment and mental health and family issues. And, but, the, but the point is, is that we've been going... These places where we've identified have been handed down from our fathers for thousands of years. They're not just places where we go fishing. You know, they've been places that we've been going for thousands of years and we've been looking after these places. So basically, at the end of the day, what we're asking for is um, we want to fix up our waters, we want to have a say in management, and we want to create some employment for our communities. I don't think we're asking very much. You know, I think we all want to fix our waters up and look after our environment. But I'm not be left out of the equation all the time, especially when we're the traditional owners and we never ceded this country.
2: That's well done, yeah, man. Wally Stewart ending that report from Kira Proust. And the inquiry will hold uh, hearings from early next year, and the report is due in March. It's time for Markets. Thanks. First up, Wagga sheep and lambs.
1: Good afternoon. Lamb numbers dropped by almost 20,000. 36,000 lambs yarded along with 10,000 sheep. Quality was quite good. However, the yarding lacked weight with good processing lambs mostly ranging from 24 to 30 kilo. Old lamb numbers fell back and buyers paid a premium for well finished shorn lambs. Floods and continued wet weather drove the market 20 to $30 higher. This process is scrambled for numbers. New seasons 21 to 24, 172 to 220, with good lambs selling above 900 cents a kilogram carcass weight. 24 to 26, 210 to 234, 26 to 30, 228 to 274 old trade lambs 21 to 24 169 to 200 heavy old lambs 208 to 264 merino trades 144 to 200 heavy merino lambs 229 to 232 store buyers struggled against processes with prices ranging from 110 to 184 merino hoggets 135 to 208 and crossbred hoggets 120
2: to 222 leantax MLA to dubbo cattle now
17: Numbers were backed by 500 free yarding of 1595. It was a good quality yarding with good numbers of young cattle to suit the processors and feeders, along with a good selection of cows. There were fair numbers of ground steers and heifers, and them were not the numbers of Bos cattle compared to the previous sale. Young cattle of the trade were firm to five cents dearer, with prime vealers selling to 580. Prime yearling sold from 450 to 584. Feeder steers were 10 cents cheaper, while the feeder heifers were 7 to 12 cents dearer. Feeder steers sold from 482 to 573, while the feeder heifers sold from 476 to 530. Young cattle of the restockers continue their upward trend with young steers selling to 800. Ground steers were 10 cents dearer, while the ground heifers were firm. Prime ground steers sold from 420 to 508, while the prime ground heifers sold from 430 to 477. Secondary cows were 8 cents dearer, while the prime heavyweight cows were firm. Two and three score cows sold from 294 to 400, while the prime heavyweight cows sold from 392 to 419 to average 408. Heavy bulls sold to 398. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. To cattle.
5: Good afternoon numbers were back with only 397 penned. The quality of the cattle was fair to good grown heifers were well supplied along with heavy feeder steers. Lighter weights and heifers were limited and with the store sale tomorrow winners were in very short supply. Around 45 cows were penned and the market sold to a firm to dearer trend. The few winner steers 610 to 736 and those under 200 kilos reached 850 Wiener heifers sold to 615 only limited number of medium weight feeder steers had prices dearer and they sold to 621 the heavy weights were firm 470 to 572 the average price of feeder heifers was cheaper but it was breed related 440 to 468 light steers to restock lifted 20 cents grown heifers to feed were 10 cents stronger 410 to 475 and those heavies going to processes 482 heavy cows lifted 4 to 6 cents 385 to 410 and the best of the heavy bulls reached 338 and this has been graham richard
2: Armadale now.
5: Numbers were static at
18: 477 good quality cattle with a large offering of cows. There was strong demand for the light end of the young cattle. Not all cow buyers attended but, attended, but demand was strong through the cow pens. Restock was very competitive through the sale. Wenis steers sold strongly 690 to 865. The heifer portion to a similar range, 614 to 704 all the restockers. Light yearling steers sold a significantly dear at Trends, 566 to 724 to restockers and 646 to feed. Medium steers 551 to 652, heavy feeders to 524. Heifer sold to dearer trends throughout, lightweights 488 to 654 to be considerably dearer. Medium feeders 394 to 540, and processing, processing heifers slightly cheaper 410 to 437. Growing steers in low numbers 390, heifer portion cheaper 370 to 398 to feed, and 436 to process.
2: It's coming up to news time.